Take your Bibles now and let's turn, please, to Colossians chapter 1. We will read verses 13 through 20. Now hear the word of the Lord. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. The grass withers, the flower fades. God's word stands forever, and this is the word that's preached today. Let us pray as we come to God's word. Our God and our Father, we thank you for your word. We praise you for revealing yourself to us and revealing to us what we could have never imagined or discovered on our own. That you who made us in your image have had mercy upon us even though we had all gone astray. And that you have reconciled us to yourself and made peace between us and yourself through the blood of the cross of Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that as we come to this word that you have revealed to us this morning, which describes for us the glory of the divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ and everything that He has done to reconcile not only us, but ultimately all things and to make peace everywhere in this universe where sin and corruption has broken everything. Father, that as we look to Him, that You will fill our hearts with wonder and with awe and with reverence and with love and with gratitude. So be with us as we study Your Word this morning. And give us grace, illuminate its meaning to our minds, help us to be more doers than just hearers of the word, help us to trust and to follow and to honor and to glorify our Lord Jesus Christ because of the power of your word within us. This we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, having wrapped up Christmas and our celebration together of the incarnation of Jesus Christ, who, as we always confess, is both fully God and fully man. As the Son of God condescended, came down from heaven and was born of the Virgin Mary and took on human flesh in order to live among us and give His life as a sacrifice that would fully atone for all of our sin. And then having heard Ian's wonderful exposition Last week of Romans chapter 8 and verse 32 describing for us all of the fullness 
and all of the sufficiency of that love and grace and work of Jesus Christ on our behalf that we can lean into, that we can put our full trust and hope and confidence in. I wanted this morning to follow all of that up by coming to these words of Paul in verses 19 and 20 of the book of Colossians, at the first chapter of the book of Colossians, where Paul declares in no uncertain terms that Jesus is not just a human being, that Jesus was not just a gifted prophet, that Jesus was not just a man anointed by God to do amazing things and to save us, that Jesus, in fact, is the eternal God Himself in human flesh. All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Him. And that He has reconciled all things to God and made peace by the blood of His cross. So important that we understand together in a right way, in a biblical way, according to what God has revealed and has done and what Jesus is and who Jesus is, so important for us to understand the true nature of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we come to this text this morning. Back in 1995, when I was a college student at the Master's University, and many of you know that school down in Southern California, it's a very biblical, very conservative Christian school. And when I was a student there, I had the opportunity to spend a, a whole semester studying abroad in the, in the country of Israel. And our primary professor there was an American man who had lived and worked in Israel for more than 20 years and, and was and still is eminently knowledgeable about the history of Israel and the geography of Israel and the Old Testament scriptures especially. And so he had taught there for many, many years until several years ago now, he declared to the school that he could no longer affirm the doctrinal statement of the school because the doctrinal statement of the school explicitly affirms the deity of Jesus Christ. That he is not just fully human, that he is fully God as well. A 100% human nature and a 100% divine nature together in the one person of Jesus Christ is who he is, but my old professor has come now to deny that truth, to reject it. He believes Jesus is the Messiah. He believes Jesus died for our sins. He just doesn't believe that Jesus is God. He believes Jesus is just a man like any, any other human being like you and me. Someone who though was anointed by God in order to do what He did in saving us by His death on the cross. But the tragic thing is that whenever anyone denies that in fact Jesus is very God of very God, it's not only that they dishonor Him massively and refuse to give Him the glory that He's worthy of as the almighty sovereign God who He is, they also put in His place a false Christ, a false Messiah. And they tear the heart right out of the gospel because they are rejecting the true Son of God and instead they are putting all of their hopes in this false Christ who in fact can't save anyone because He doesn't even exist. And even if He did, 
He'd just be a special anointed human being who did not have the ability to do what Paul says he did here and reconcile not only us, but all things to God. So it's like this. It's like if someone said that they needed to get to Paris. It's a matter of life and death. I have to get there as soon as possible. Can you help me figure out how to get to Paris? And so you give them a map to Paris, only the map takes them to the town called Paris in Wisconsin. There is one, believe it or not. It's the same name, but it's not going to do them any good whatsoever to go to Wisconsin when they need to get to Paris, France. Or it's like if someone needs antibiotics like penicillin or amoxicillin and I just take a bottle that says Tylenol on it and stick a label over it and write penicillin or amoxicillin on it and then give it to them and say, hey, this is what you need. This is going to clear you right up. It doesn't matter what I've called it, right? It doesn't matter what I wrote on the label. If they take the Tylenol, they might feel better for a little bit of time, but, but the Tylenol is not going to heal them. It's not going to cure the infection. It's not the actual medicine that they need. And that's what happens when people deny the biblical definition of who Jesus is. They can call Him Jesus. They can call Him the Messiah. But He is not the Messiah they need. Many, many people believe in someone called Jesus. But if He is not very God of very God, if He is not the eternal Creator, if He is not the image of the invisible God and the firstborn over all creation, like Paul says in verses 15 through 20 here, if He is not all the fullness of deity in bodily form, if He is not the One who is before all things and the One who made all things and the One in whom and for whom all things exist, the one who holds all things together by the word of his power, the head of the church, the beginning, the firstborn of the dead, right? The, the one who is sovereignly forging a new creation, which is already erupting in the midst of this present broken, fractured, sin-cursed creation because he's preeminent over everything and he's redeeming and reconciling everything because he is the great, eternal, sovereign, holy, almighty God. If He's not all of that, then He can't be our Savior. If He's not the truth, then He's not the life. And He can't do anyone any good except providing some kind of a, a good example for us all to follow, which we'll fail to do because we'll still be in our sins if He's not who He says He is. And this is exactly what Satan wants to do. This is one of Satan's favorite, favorite strategies. The Bible tells us that Satan blinds the minds of unbelievers. Some people he can blind with, with the unbelief of totally denying the very existence of God at all. Other people Satan can blind with the, the, the lie, the deception of, of the claims of false religions and false gods. And even within the ranks of those who identify themselves as Christians, they call themselves followers of Jesus Christ, Satan is blinding many, many eyes and deceiving many, many people into following false Christs. Following a path that's got the right road sign on it, but in fact, 
it's leading to destruction and not to everlasting life. So the lie is all roads lead to heaven. That's the lie. The truth is there is only one road. There is only one way that leads to heaven and eternal salvation and life with God the Father. And that way is Christ Jesus Himself. Very God of very God. All the fullness of deity in bodily form. And then there are many, many ways, every other way, which all lead to destruction. So knowing Him and worshiping Him and trusting Him and leaning on Him and depending on Him and loving and serving the one true Jesus, that's the only way. That's the only hope. Because He is, He says Himself, does He not? The only way, the only truth, the only life, the only way to the Father. Now, everything that Paul says in this whole section of Scripture here, specifically between verses 15 and 20, which, by the way, is actually a, a, a poem in Greek that Paul has written, like a hymn which absolutely exalts the utter supremacy and sufficiency of Jesus Christ. All of it's a, a grand Holy Spirit-inspired proof of Jesus's preeminence over everything. That's what this chunk of Scripture is all about. He is preeminent over every single aspect of existence, of being in the universe. The eternal, sovereign, incarnate, crucified, risen, enthroned Creator and Sustainer and Redeemer and Savior God, Jesus Christ, is preeminent. That means He's supreme. He's sufficient. He's, he has first place over all creation and all of the new creation that He is currently making. Over every single order of being, Jesus Christ and Him alone is preeminent. There's no hope, there's no way, there's no life apart from Him. And in verse 19, Paul is, is summing up all of this grand truth, all this awesome truth about the preeminence and the supremacy and the sufficiency of Jesus over, over every order of being in the universe. He's been building this, he's been establishing this throughout the course of this, this poem, this hymn, starting in verse 15. And here in verse 19, he sums it all up with these awesome words that are, that are aimed like a cannon straight at the heart of all of the false teachers who would in any way try to diminish the divine singular glory and majesty of Jesus Christ. And that's what a bunch of false teachers were doing in and around the city of Colossae, which is why Paul wrote this book in the first place. And this is what false teachers are continuing to do today. Even my former professor in Israel, he is now diminishing the divine glory of Jesus Christ. And to him, and to all Christ deniers, Paul says this, For in him, in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And... Through Him and through Him alone. Because no one else could do this. Only Him in whom all of the fullness of God is pleased to dwell could reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. And that's what we want to 
understand together today. What does all that mean? Notice the word for at the beginning of verse 19. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. So in verse 19, Paul is giving the ultimate reason why Jesus is preeminent over everything as the end of verse 18 says that he is. So again, in that whole section, in verses 15 through 20, in verses 15 through 18 especially, he's establishing the preeminence of Jesus in this fallen world full of sin. Jesus is preeminent through creation, and Jesus is preeminent through redemption, through his death, through his resurrection. And verse 19, Paul is saying that he's preeminent, he's supreme, objectively, not just because what he's done in creating and redeeming, but in terms of what he is, who he is, according to his nature, because his nature is this, in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. That's why Jesus is preeminent. That's why Jesus, not just because he's a human being who is specially gifted and anointed by God, but he is God. And that's why he's preeminent above all other beings in this world. So what Paul says there in verse 19 is very similar to what he says down in chapter 2 and verse 9, where he says that in Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Do you see how it's impossible, even just on the surface of these words, to understand Paul in any other way than to be saying that Jesus is God? You cannot deny the deity of Christ without massively mangling and twisting and perverting and distorting these very, very clear words. There's nothing that Paul could have said differently or more clearly than what he says here in order to say Jesus is fully God and fully man. People who want to deny this, right? They just have to take these two verses and basically bury them in the dirt and ignore them or dismantle them and, like I said, twist them into an unrecognizable form. Paul couldn't be any more clear, any more unequivocal than he is right here in verse 19. All the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. The word dwell is the Greek word oikos, which means a house, like the house you live in. Not the motel room you go to once in a while. Not the house somebody else lives in that you visit once in a while. Your house, the house you dwell in. Not a, not a place you stay temporarily. This word means the permanent residence. And so what Paul is very literally saying is that Jesus Christ is preeminent in everything, in all of creation, in every order of being, in all of the universe, heaven and earth, because the eternal, everlasting, almighty, creator, sovereign God, the great I Am, Yahweh, in all His fullness was pleased to take up permanent residence in this man, Jesus. Fully God fully man. We have to understand it. It's not a 50-50 mix. He's not some kind of a hybrid. He's not two separate beings squished together in order to make some kind of a third thing. Jesus is a single person who, unlike any other person in the world, is made up of two separate, fully complete natures. One is fully human and one is fully divine. No one else in the world 
is analogous to that. You and I, I'm a single person and I have one nature, a human nature. But Jesus had also a fully divine second nature, perfectly united to his human nature in a way that didn't change his human nature and make it somehow deified or different than your human nature or mine. Turn it into a third thing. He's fully human, he's fully divine in one single being, one person, Jesus Christ, all the fullness of God. He's not just a man sent from God. He's not just a man anointed by God. He's not just some kind of some kind of emanation from God, a reflection of God, or some divine residue that radiated or rubbed off of God and got into Jesus and made him able to do special stuff. That's all heresy. That's all wrong. All the fullness, the total quantity, the absolute completeness, the full measure and totality is what the word fullness means. All the fullness of God was pleased to take up permanent residence in Jesus. In the, in the second century of the church, way back, a letter was written. We don't actually know who wrote it. It was written by a Christian author. And he was explaining and defending the biblical Christian faith to a man named Diognetus, who was an advisor uh, and, a, and a tutor of Marcus Aurelius, the Roman emperor. And in this letter, listen to how the author explains to Diognetus how and why God was pleased for all of his fullness to dwell in Jesus Christ instead of just giving Jesus some special godlike powers. He writes to Diognetus these words. He says, God did not establish his truth on earth by sending an angel or a ruler or one of those who direct earthly things or one of those who are entrusted with the dispensations in heaven even. But the very craftsman and creator of the universe himself, by whom he made the heavens, by whom he enclosed the sea in its own bounds, whose mysteries all the elements guard faithfully, from whom the sun received the measure of the course of the day, to whose command the moon is obedient to give light by night, the one whom the stars obey following the course of the moon, the one by whom all things were ordered and ordained and placed in subjection, the heavens and the things in the heavens, the earth and all the things in the earth, the sea and all the things in the sea, fire, air, abyss, all the things in the heights, the things in the depths, the things between them, the creator and sovereign sustainer of all these things is Him who God sent into all these things. That's pretty fantastic, isn't it? The craftsman Himself, the Creator Himself, the Sovereign One Himself, the One to whom all things are subject, that's the One who came to be pre not just a, an emissary of His, but Him Himself came to be preeminent in all things, was pleased to dwell in all of His fullness in the man, Jesus. Now you think about that. That the God who is omnipresent all places at once came to dwell in a specific place. How can that be? 
Well, think about the Old Testament. It's the same thing. God is omnipresent, isn't he? By his very nature, he's present in all places. And at all times, there is no place where he cannot be. There cannot be any place where he is not. And at the same time, this omnipresent God was pleased to manifest the fullness of his presence among his chosen people in the Old Testament in the tabernacle, in a tent, and in the temple that they built on Mount Zion. Psalm 132, For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it. This is Yahweh. He has desired it for His dwelling place. This is my resting place. Here will I dwell, God says, for I have desired it. The rationalists will say, well, you can't have it both ways. You can't have an omnipresent God who's present in one place. Well, if you're God, you can. In the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 1, John says, In the beginning was the Word. This is what we all rejoice in at Christmas. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through Him, and without Him not was, there was not anything made that has been made. That's, that's the eternal Son of God that he's talking about there, right? The second person of the divine trinity, the Word who was God in the beginning. And then, of course, we all know that in verse 14 of that very same chapter, John says that He, the eternal Word, the divine Son of God, the second person of the tr trinity, the unchangeable eternal God became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And, and you know, because you've heard me say it before, that the word there in John 1.14, where John says that he, he became flesh and dwelt among us, that word dwelt is the very specific word that literally means to tabernacle, to pitch a tent and live, dwell in the midst of a people as God did in the Old Testament, in the tabernacle, in the temple. That's what it means. It means to establish a temple for the dwelling of God. And it's no accident that John chose to use that word. What he wants for us to understand is that in the Old Testament, where all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in this physical tent, in this physical tabernacle, and provide to the Old Testament people a a temporary and provisional means of God in their midst atoning for the sins of the people so that they could be in fellowship with Him. Now, John wants us to understand, in the new covenant, it's even better, infinitely better, because all the fullness of God was pleased to tabernacle, to dwell, to take a permanent residence, not in a tent, but in a temple of human flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus, who as only a God-man, the God-man could do, would make a single sacrifice that would be all-sufficient, one that never needed to be repeated or supplemented or added to, that would make full and everlasting atonement for all of the sins of all of God's people for all of time and be sufficient even to reconcile all things to God. See, no, no mere mortal human could do that. David Garland says, Jesus Christ 
supplants the tabernacle and the temple or any other house made with human hands and represents God in our midst in person. So see, no more earthly tents. No more portable temporary dwelling places for God. No more temples made by human hands out of earthly stuff that rots and decays like the old temples did. Jesus has superseded all of that. Jesus has replaced all that. And in Him, the fullness of God is manifested in this world, in person. F.F. Bruce says, all of the attributes and activities of God, His Spirit, His Word, His wisdom, His power, His glory, all of them are disclosed and revealed and made manifest in person, in Jesus. And the reason why He came in this way and in this form, Paul says in verse 20, was reconciliation. The purpose of God in causing all of His fullness to dwell in the person of Jesus Christ, according to verse 20, was to reconcile not just you and me, but all things to Himself. Now, in these two verses here, verses 19 and 20 of Colossians 1, the pronouns that Paul uses are important to understand. So if you replace the pronouns with the persons that they're referring to, this is how it would sound. Listen to it. For in Jesus, all of the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through Jesus, to reconcile to God all things, all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making blood by the, making peace by the blood of Jesus' cross. So it's in Jesus that all of the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And it was through Jesus, who He was and everything that He did, that all things in heaven and on earth are reconciled to God because in Jesus, God is making peace by way of the blood of the cross of Jesus. Now, you know this word peace? It comes from the Old Testament. It's, it's Irene here in the Greek New Testament, but it's the translation of that, that Hebrew word shalom in the Old Testament. And that word means, you know, to make something whole, which has been shattered into pieces. And so the, the classic illustration of it is a, a priceless vase sitting on a table and it gets knocked off the table and it hits the, the tile floor and it shatters into a million little pieces little shards. And shalom means to take all of those pieces and to put them all back together and to restore wholeness again. That's what shalom means. It can refer to broken relationships, shattered by sin, shattered by abuse, shattered by unfaithfulness, being made whole again through love and forgiveness, and repentance, and grace, and mercy. Here it's referring to the whole cosmic order. Here it's referring to all things. Not only our relationship to God, which was broken by our sin, but everything in this creation that's become broken because of the presence of sin in the world. Restored to wholeness. That's the biblical concept of peace. The restoration of wholeness from 
broken, shattered pieces. So how do we understand that in terms of what Paul says here, that all things, whether on earth or in heaven, are being reconciled to God through Jesus? Well, we understand what reconciliation to God means, right, when it comes to us, when it comes to sinful human beings. We're used to that. We're used to talking about how Jesus' death on the cross affects reconciliation between us in our sin who were the enemies of God and God who is holy. That's what Paul says in Romans 5.11. We rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have received now reconciliation to God. Paul talks about that ministry of reconciliation in 2 Corinthians. He talks about us being reconciled to God by being made new creations in Christ Jesus, the old passing away and the new coming. Our sin has separated us from God. Our sin has put up a a barrier between us and God to to the fellowship with God that we were created to enjoy. And on the cross, in the person of Jesus, God Himself took upon Himself the sin that we're guilty of that separates us from Him in order to bring us back together, in order to restore and make whole what had been broken. For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. So we understand what that means for lost sinners to be reconciled through the sacrifice of Jesus on our behalf, reconciled to God. But here, Paul's talking about a lot more, right, than just lost sinners being reconciled to God. All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Jesus. All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell through Jesus in order to reconcile to God all things, he says, whether on earth or in heaven. What does it mean? Well, when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, it wasn't just the human race that was affected, right? It wasn't just the human race that was corrupted by sin. Through the one man's sin, all men became sinful, Paul says in Romans 5. And then Romans 8 goes on to describe how the entire created order has become defiled and corrupted by that sin also. Verses 19 to 22 of Romans 8, the creation itself waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. The whole creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of Him, God, who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will one day be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in in the pains of childbirth until now. So see, by God's design, the human race plays the key role in the ordering of the whole entire creation. So when human beings fell into sin, when Adam and Eve fell into sin and the whole human race in Adam fell into sin, The entire creation fell. The entire creation was subjected to futility. God's curse didn't just fall on Adam and Eve and and all of their offspring. It fell on the ground itself. Cursed is the ground because of you, God said to Adam. 
Through painful toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you. And so you will eat of the plants of the field through, through hard labor and hard work. Because the ground is cursed. When sin came in, creation itself became a sufferer. Permeated with death and decay and futility. It became broken. It became shattered because of sin and because of the curse of God. One scholar says, Everywhere we look, our eyes meet images of death and decay. The scourge of barrenness, the fury of the elements, the destructive instinct of the beasts, the very laws which govern vegetation. Everything gives nature a somber hue because every, the grass withers, the flower fades. Nothing in this creation lasts forever. It returns to dust. Kent Hughes says, The animal world was invaded by fear and violence when sin came in. Every order is affected. The loveliest scenes in nature while remaining beautiful to our eyes are also witness to bloody horrors and floods and hurricanes and droughts, tornadoes, blights, avalanches and earthquakes all stalk the earth incessantly. Wars, violence, genocide, terrorism, political corruption, the rot of immorality, every kind of disease and death and suffering and natural disaster, the whole creation is groaning. It's all broken and desperately groaning to be redeemed. Now think how glorious it will be when the last trumpet is blown and the resurrection power of Jesus that, that by which He was raised from the grave and made immortal, when that power is extended to the entire creation. And the kingdom of this world becomes the kingdom of God in Christ and He makes all things new. And there won't be anything broken anymore. It will all be shalom. It will all be at peace. It will all be restored to wholeness. There won't be bloodshed. There won't be suffering. There won't be disease. There won't be the ravages of cancer. There won't be violence. There won't be immorality. There won't be corruption when God makes all things new. And this is the glorious truth, the same glorious truth that Paul is highlighting here in verse 20 of Colossians 1. Just as human sin led to creation's fall off the mantle and shattering onto the floor, so too will human reconciliation to God in Christ Jesus lead to creation's restoration and renewal when everything is made new. And you remember Paul wrote the letter to the Colossians from, from prison. He'd never even been there. They just sent somebody to him while he was in prison to say, hey, we need help. And Paul, chained up in Rome, wrote this letter preaching the gospel of reconciliation to God through Jesus Christ. So see, Paul himself knows personally all too well that even after the death and resurrection of Jesus, because he's living in prison 30 years later, he knows that the world at large remains unaware of the reconciliation that Jesus achieved on the cross. And they need, to, they need to be aware 
through the revelation of God's Word. And for the most part, it's the same in our day, right? The world has no idea that one day Jesus is going to withhold His sustaining power and that, that the heavens themselves, as Peter says, are going to be dissolved and, and melt away in the fires of His judgment and the whole earth is going to be exposed to His wrath and, and that then a new heavens and a new earth will be created where, where none of the current power structures exist. A new heavens and a new earth where, where nothing is going to reflect human arrogance and pride and sin anymore. And there will be no death, no decay, no suffering because everything is going to reflect the eternal glory of God. That day's coming when the reconciliation that, that Jesus accomplished by shedding His blood on the cross and then being raised on the third day, the reconciliation of human men to the Holy God, that reconciliation is, is one day going to extend to the whole universe. Just like you've been buried with Jesus in baptism, crucified with Him and raised to newness of life, the whole creation is going to get crucified. Dissolved, broken up into its elemental pieces and then reorganized again into a new one. A glorious one. So it won't just be broken sinners being made whole. It's going to be everything that is fractured and shattered and broken in this world being made whole. Everything will finally be at peace eternally. That's your hope. And the groanings and the sufferings and the trials and the travails of this world that we feel all around us and in our very bodies are meant to point us to that hope. N.T. Wright says, God plans for an eventual complete harmony. New heavens, new earth, all evil, all suffering is to be destroyed through the cosmic outworking of the crucifixion. All creation is to be transformed in the cosmic result of the resurrection. Isn't that fabulous? That's the great purpose that God has set in motion. And every single moment of human suffering here, even if those moments extend for, for days and weeks and months and years, are momentary light afflictions compared to the glory of what is to come. Because it'll never end. It'll be eternal this wholeness and this peace and this reconciliation. And so, all of this, see, has been planned before the foundations of the world by God. And all of this was foreshadowed and anticipated in, in all of the Old Testament rituals and, and ceremonies and sacrifices all throughout the history of God's people, all leading up to Jesus in whom the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. He's the ultimate tabernacle. He's the perfect and final temple. He's the eternal, perfect high priest. You don't need another high priest. You don't need another sacrifice. You don't need another temple. Because the eternal, holy, perfect high priest is the spotless Lamb of God and the ultimate all-sufficient sacrifice through whom we are all recreated and reborn and reconciled to God through faith. And He is the one through whom all things will one day be reconciled. Your body, this whole world, recreated, renewed, at peace, made whole forever. And one of the most profound ways in which God gives us the privilege of seeing 
of beholding, of, of experiencing, even now while the creation is still groaning, while our bodies are still groaning, seeing and experiencing the, the power of the reconciliation of Jesus Christ, one of the ways he gives us is, is when that reconciliation flows through our own lives and our own relationships, here and now. You remember in John 13, Jesus, shortly before he was to go to the cross, took the form of a servant, got down on his hands and knees, and washed his disciples' dirty, muddy, filthy, stinky feet after supper on the night before the crucifixion. Right? He their master, he their maker, he their Lord, he their God, stooped down and took a towel and took water and washed their grimy feet like a household servant would normally do. And then he said to them what? Having done that, he said, a new commandment I give to you now, that you love one another just as I have loved you. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another in this, in this way, in this condescending, sacrificial, servant-like way. So the clearest mark, Jesus says, of discipleship to him, of being a follower of him in this world full of, full of brokenness, the clearest mark that we have been made whole in Christ and reconciled to God by the self-sacrificing love of Jesus is when that same self-abasing, self-sacrificing love is shed abroad in our hearts and then comes pouring out of us. That love that has reconciled us to God comes flowing out of us towards one another and causes reconciliation to be forged in our earthly relationships in ways that are costly and sacrificial for us. So especially in the relationships that aren't easy, especially in the ones that have become broken, that have fallen and become shattered in this world. And we've all had those kinds of relationships, right? Whether they're marriages or family relationships or friendships, everyone knows what it's like to experience the pain of, of peace being shattered. And sometimes there's nothing that can be done in this world and in this life to, to mend those relationships. Sometimes the sin is so severe and unrepentant or one person or the other or both are, are, are unwilling to put aside their grievances and make peace. But oh, how Jesus Christ is so exalted and glorified when His reconciling, peacemaking love flows and especially when it flows in both directions and forges peace among His people where that peace had previously been broken. So listen to the words of Paul in Romans chapter 12, right? After all of Romans 1 through 11, after 11 chapters of explaining and proclaiming and rejoicing in the great gospel love of Jesus that has reconciled sinners to God, then in Romans 12, Paul declares how this life-transforming, reconciling love has to look, this peacemaking love that God has had towards us has to look in our lives as we love one another. 
Romans 12, verses 10 through 13, love one another with brotherly affection and outdo one another in showing honor. Don't let them one-up you in the way that they love you and honor you. Don't be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit and serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in all tribulation. Be constant in prayer. And always contribute to the needs of the saints. And always seek to show hospitality. Those are, those are just some of the great general exhortations about what the Christian life has to consist of when the love of God is defining it instead of our own fleshly impulses defining it. And then he gets a little more specific and a lot more challenging in verse 14 of Romans 12. He says, in fact, bless those who persecute you. Don't curse them, bless them. And the words blessing and curse there refer to speech, to what we say about somebody. That's challenging, right? We say, well, somebody, somebody did something to me I don't like, and I'm not going to return evil for evil. I'm not going to go and let all the air out of their tires, right? I'm not going to go and light their barn on fire. But I am going to sit here with some of my closest friends and say really bad stuff about them. Paul says, no, no, no. Bless them. Say really good stuff about them. That's challenging, right? When it comes to how we respond to people who have sinned against us, persecuted us. What... What do we allow to come out of our mouths in reference to those people? It's so easy in our flesh to allow ourselves to speak curses against them, to speak ill of them, to shame them, to slander them to other people. But Paul says, if the self-abasing, self-sacrificing love of Jesus, right, who is the fullness of God, emptying himself in selfless, humble, loving sacrifice, the one who made peace between us and God by shedding blood on the cross, if that love is defining us, and not just our status in terms of whether we get to go to heaven or not, but but defining us and how we live and our relationships, our responses to the people who have hurt us, then Paul says if that's what's defining us, the opposite of curses is going to come out of our mouths towards people who persecute us. And, and we're going to be ready to lay down our own, our own rights. And we're going to be ready to, to, to lay aside and to crucify our own demand for justice for ourselves. Because that's what Jesus did. Jesus said, I'm not going to get what's fair for me. I'm going to get what's good for you, even though you don't deserve it. I'm, I'm also not going to get what I deserve in order to give you mercy. Doesn't that mean that we should at least be speaking well of people and and seeking to bless them even if they've persecuted us? If the love of the one who said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do as he hung on the cross, if he spoke those words, what words should we be speaking? What should be coming out of us if that's what came out of him? Paul goes on in Romans 12, he says, Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep, which just means you've always got to let compassion and empathy, not selfishness, not irritability, not frustration, not pride, but compassion and empathy and love has got to be what drives and defines your relationships. 
Live in harmony with one another. Don't be haughty. Don't be prideful. Associate yourself with the lowly. Don't let self-centered pride define how you associate with people or who you associate with. Don't let self-interest establish the boundaries of how you treat people or else there's going to be a lot of discord in your relationships and you're going to have a, a, a smaller and smaller group of people that you associate with. Don't just associate with people who check all the right boxes for you. No, you need to be like Jesus. You need to be a peacemaker. You need to be a reconciler. Jesus defined who he was going to associate with in terms of what they needed most and first, not in terms of what he could get out of them first. And that's got to be what Christian love and peaceability and, and maturity looks like. Never be wise in your own sight, Paul says. Don't repay anyone evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with everyone. Never avenge yourselves. Leave it to the wrath of God. He knows He's sovereign. He's able to avenge. He's able to set things right. Trust Him. Vengeance is mine and I will repay, says the Lord. So for you, to the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If your enemy is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Don't be overcome by evil. Rather, overcome evil by doing good. That's what it looks like to live in a broken world. As broken people who have been made whole. In relationship with other broken people. It needs to look like Christ coming down. And making the ultimate sacrifice in order to make reconciliation, in order to make peace, in order to make wholeness. Don't do anything from selfish ambition or conceit, Philippians 2.3 says, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. How, how are we doing at that? Let each of you look not to his own desires only or interests only, but, but also to the interests of others. How, how are we doing at that? That unconditional, self-sacrificing kind of peacemaking love. Maybe somebody says, well, I, you know, I, that's not even possible for me. I can't do that. Because my life has been too hard. My circumstances are too hard. I haven't been given the gift of humility. I haven't been given the gift of this kind of love. Right? I just... I, God hasn't granted me that kind of attitude in my own heart. In case we, we try to give ourselves excuses like that, not to love the way Jesus loves, Paul says, doesn't he, in Philippians 2, have this mind among yourselves which is already yours in Christ Jesus. You do have it because He indwells you. Because He's made you a new creation. You're just not using it. You're just turning to the flesh again. And saying, I don't want to live like Christ in me lives. I want to live my way. Have this attitude in yourselves, which is yours in Christ, who though He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied Himself, took the form of a servant, born in the likeness of men, and humbling Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death on the cross. 
If we're true believers, if we're true followers of Jesus, if we have truly been raised to newness of life with Him and loved by Him to the uttermost and reconciled to God by the blood of His cross, then His Word says you have that same mind. It's already yours in Christ Jesus. So every moment we're not doing it, we're not loving one another like that, is a moment we're favoring our our mind to the mind of Christ, our way to the way of Christ. That's a moment we're pushing aside the love of Jesus in favor of the love of self. And saying to our Lord who bled and died for us, well, I'm happy to receive that love from you, but I'm not happy to give it back to anyone else. That's a moment of unbelief whenever we do that. And every moment we're doing that is a moment where we're tearing at the bonds that hold Christ's people together. But every moment, on the other hand, when we're forsaking self and laying aside our own desires and our rights like Jesus did and serving one another sacrificially like Jesus did, putting one another's needs in front of our own like Jesus did, forgiving one another, loving one another in the same manner that Jesus did, all of that is, is, is time that we're sewing things together making peace, putting back together the pieces that have been broken and reconciling relationships that have been divided and pulled apart. And when that happens, God is most glorified because that's who He is. And the world looks and if they see us doing that, then they know we belong to Christ because Christ did that and is doing that. And one day we'll sew everything back together and make all things new. So, Christians who have been loved to the uttermost, who have been reconciled to God by the blood of the cross where the God-man laid down his life in sacrificial love. Let's pray together today that he will continue to supply us with the grace, the strength, the humility, the righteousness that we need to crucify our own self-serving sin and pride, and to love in the same way that we have been loved. To forgive just as we've been forgiven. To make peace wherever possible so far as it depends on us. To bless instead of cursing. To sew together instead of tearing apart. Pray with me today. Our God and our Father, we acknowledge that that Jesus is not just the example of this for us to follow. He is that, but He's so much more than that. He is the one who has broken us down and crucified us and raised us up to newness of life and put us all back together, sanctifying us, Father, making us whole, giving us new life in order that we might resemble Him and be conformed to the image of His glory. And so, Father, as He abides in us and as we abide in Him, we pray that You will continue the work that You have begun in us. We pray that You will transform our lives by the renewing of our minds, that You will help us to take every thought captive to the obedience of Jesus Christ, that You will help us to see all of the ways in which we fall short of the glory of the holiness of who Jesus is and the way that He loves and makes peace and reconciles. And Father, we know that the way that You do do all of that in us is, is to keep us fixed and focused on the truth, on the gospel, 
on the radiance of the glory of Jesus and on the great hope that lies ahead of us when you will make all things new and when you will reconcile all things to yourself and when there will be no more suffering and no more division and no more sickness and no more disease, no more violence, no more wickedness, no more immorality, no more death, no more tears. And so, Father, we pray, give us this hope and make us confident. Help us to understand how greatly we have been loved and help us to love as we have been loved. And may our lives bring glory to Jesus. For we pray it in his precious and holy name. Amen. Amen. We always sing this hymn at Christmas and I want to sing it one more time.